This podcast brought to you by Hope 103.2. The Big Picture, a Christian insight into the world of movies, television and pop culture with magazine editor Ben McKechn and scriptwriter Mark Hadley. A Bible Society Australia production, sharing the light of God's Word into every corner of your world. G'day, I'm Ben McKechn. And I'm that guy who's always using the leaf blower outside his house on a Saturday morning. It's Mark Hadley. That Hello. is you, yeah. Thank mum for that for Christmas, really. <laughs> Welcome to episode 130 of The Big Picture for the week beginning October 23. And coming up on today's show... Thor Ragnarok and roll and rock on. The latest Marvel stage show is here. Plus, weather attacks in Geostorm and star-studded sci-fi spectacle with Philip K. Dick's Electric Dreams. As we love to do here at The Big Picture, we love to inform you of what's going on at cinemas and also on the small screen. So, on the big screen around the place at the moment, what opened last Thursday, Mark, was a film called Home Again. Oscar winner, I repeat, Oscar winner, Reese Witherspoon, starring as a mum who's separated from her husband. She hooks up with a younger guy... He and his two mates move into her house. Then the husband comes back in on the scene again. Is this some sort of older woman's fantasy? Is it going to be a comedy or a drama? Or a nightmare. I don't know. Husband plus three boyfriends. I, I'm terribly confused. But Home Again is out at cinemas now. Coming this Thursday is Suburbicon that stars Matt ah. Damon and Julianne Moore in some sort of 1950s set creepy kind of urban thriller that's got an everyday guy who gets caught up in the violence that seems to be lurking under the surface of suburban life. It's directed and co-written by George Clooney and also co-written with the Coen brothers. So you can expect all kinds of kook and quirk from Suburbicon, which we'll be talking about on the show next week. Well, speaking of kook and quirk, yes. uh, on this week in the ABC, season two of Rosehaven. Oh, mate, I love the first season of Rosehaven. And season two is starting up this Wednesday, Thank October you, ABC. 25. There you go. And Rosehaven is the awkward Australian TV comedy, if you don't know, written and created by actor-comedian Luke McGregor, uh, and he's starring himself and fellow comedian Celia uh, Pakula. Uh, the series has been drawn its inspiration from McGregor's actual life, his parents, who worked in a real estate agent in Tasmania oh, right, since right, 1986, yeah. right? So he's got a lot of insight into this, and this is basically him returning home to the little town of Rosehaven to find him that he must yet again prove himself at McCallum Real Estate, where he's best friend and has just been promoted so there he goes into the family business and more hijinks to be following oh, mate in short that was funny and quirky and cool and oh the second season hopefully is all of that and and much more but if you're not a traditional abc watcher or like that sort of australian bent comedy uh, in this particular week you will also find the release of season three of the, of the flash there were two Stan. there were two seasons <laughs> I'm a fan. Listen, I'm telling you now, um, there are boys who are probably shouldn't be up late listening to this show um, all over the nation going, yee, clapping their hands and running around the, uh, the lounge room. They would be at our place. Season two's big finale. There's a lot of answer, uh, questions to be answered this coming season. Can Barry deal with the multiple timeline changes? Can we, for that matter, um, just as well that our 13-year-old has personally mapped out all the potential plot lines <laughs> that will actually be in season three because of what happened in season one and two. Nothing like time travel to give yourself a convoluted story. I'm sure there's going to be a lot of remote pausing at our place. You know that whole sort of pause, what just happened? Okay, right, let's talk that through and play again. So season three of The Flash is now on stand. Go and enjoy. That's what's happening on the small screen. That's the big pictures picks for this week. Before we get to our first big review for the show and now what your kids are watching segment we're going to be talking about, 
Geostorm. I think you actually have to say it every time you say it. Geostorm, just like that. Before we get to Geostorm, Mark has a true or false statement to challenge us with about wild weather. It's true. It's not exactly a new thing to have a film about, you know, vast uh, events, you know, meteorological events destroying the planet. Uh, So we just thought, look, why don't we do a little bit of research into this and do a true or false? Actual research. There are many films about meteorites hitting the earth and causing some form of catastrophe, but in fact, a very large meteorite was discovered by a farmer in 1929, the largest on record, in fact. How big was the largest meteorite discovered on record? Was it 25 tonnes? And look what I've done here to help you guys. About three elephants. Oh, that's about three elephants. There you go, 25 tonnes. 45 tonnes, which is about 100 grand pianos. (laughs) um, Or 65 tonnes, which is basically the weight of the space shuttle. Oh, man, okay. So whether it's elephants, grand pianos, or space shuttles. (laughs) What did we find in the size of a meteorite? You tune in later, we'll tell you all about it. Okay, I really hope it's the space shuttle. In the meantime, the destruction and despair caused by earthquakes, hurricanes, flooding, bushfires and blizzards can be seen as a sort of never-ending part of our world's daily life. Handed to Hollywood then to turn such real-life woes into blockbuster entertainment. Geostorm is a new end-of-the-world wild weather movie. But just how new is its approach to protecting the planet? Thanks to a system of satellites, natural disasters have become a thing of the past. We can control our weather. Mr. President, one of our thermospheric satellites malfunctioned over Afghanistan. So your proposal is what? We shut down all satellites. I don't need to remind all of you how many people died from catastrophic climate conditions. Make sure there's no further incidents. Are you going back up to space? I'm coming back. I love it when people have that sort of, we're going back tone. Okay, right. (laughs) It's that kind of movie. I know. So this is another spin on basically the day after tomorrow or 2012 or any of those big budget environmental disaster movies, yes? Yeah, pretty much, Mark. This is from a guy called Dean Devlin who's written and directed this. You might not know his name, but... Well, because he's the only guy who hasn't done one of these. Well, why I raise the fact that he's behind this is because he was involved with Independence Day, which was directed by a guy called Roland Emmerich, who went on to direct The Day After Tomorrow and 2012, big natural disaster environmental movies. Dean Devlin seems like he's been so inspired by his colleague Roland Emmerich that he basically just thought, oh, I should make my own version of that. And so <laughs> I, I, we I blew those Geostorm. things up. I blew those things up before. Let's blow up some more models. Yeah, and let's like try to get as many different types of weather in the one movie and see what happens. Okay, so this thing I only really want to know, when they get around to destroying Australia, and they always seem to do so, what particular national icon do they blow up? Prepare for disappointment, Mark, that I did. I was waiting for the moment when the Opera House would get destroyed. Didn't like Ayers Rock didn't get swallowed up by anything. No, Australia no, the doesn't Harbour even Bridge feature. No. That's, what is it? Are we not worthy of destruction? No, evidently we are not. Even though, as Geostorm tries to remind us uh, over and over again, uh, this is an international effort that in 2019, so in two years' time, we need to be ready for this, people. In two years' time, what's going to happen is uh, w- weather has turned on us so badly that the world gets together, unites... To create this system, as the clip we played just demonstrated, a system of satellites that protect us from the elements and keep us safe. 
and then you know uh, something goes wrong. Uh, oh, I know. really? Yeah. In a complex system surrounding the globe, control. This sound is processed by Stereo Tool. Go to StereoTool.com. And then stuff that we've never seen before. Oh, never is seen before. Going to happen. Look, this has got people in it like Jared Butler, who is a guy who's been around the tracks for a while, but he's a bit of a B-grade action hero, isn't he? Mm. He's the lead. He's Jake. He created this system. Uh, and then there's Australian actress Abby Cornish in this as a uh, like a secret agent with the president. The American president is played by Andy Garcia. <laughs> sorry, like, sorry. So we've got a scientist, a secret agent, the president. These are fairly stock standard listing of characters. Yes, yes, there is. And and Geostorm, Geostorm is largely is stock there standard. A pilot. There, no, no, okay. no. And unfortunately, Mark, you'd be disappointed on that front too. So oh. Australia and a pilot don't feature. But what it does is basically a rehash, largely of 2012, that Roland Emmerich film, just at more of a B-grade level. And what the film tends to do all the way through, beyond giving you <laughs> cliché characters, cheesy dialogue, cheesy situations, is try to avert what it says in the title, the Geostorm, which is basically the mother of all storms that's going to crush the Earth. It spends most of its time running around in a flap, either up on the satellite or down on Earth trying to prevent this weather from happening. So you just spend a lot of time watching a movie trying to prevent weather. Yeah. Storm. It's very much like watching the weather. Is there anything about it that you can recommend? I thought the strongest elements of the film were the relationship between the main brothers in it. So Jake, Jared Butler's character, and Max, who's played by Jim Sturgis, who is this guy who's kind of uh, a bit of a suit and meant to be looking after the whole program. The relationship between them was all right, a bit stronger at points than you'd expect from a movie like this. Same with the interaction between uh, Jake and his daughter, Jake being an unreliable father. And so this is one of those movies that doesn't really give you too much in terms of character mm. and you're never really heading in there for it but uh, I liked I liked some of that uh, relationship side of things and it also does tap into our real life fears about climate change also about government self-interest and there's a strange anti-American sentiment in it for an American film, okay, which well, I was quite surprised about. Giving that it taps into our natural fears for the weather, which seems to be a very you know, real-world situation, uh, what is it saying, basically, that we have a chance to save ourselves or...? Yeah, surprise. So um, the Geostorm uh, really tries to hit at if we all unite together as a world, not just America, not just China, not just whoever, individual nations, if we come together, we can really solve our own problems. It's a message very similar to, it reminded me of Interstellar. Actually, Interstellar Ah. is like light years better than Geostorm. But Interstellar, and even an inconvenient sequel that you reviewed on the show a a couple of months ago. um, A documentary about a PowerPoint. A documentary, but a documentary about our real world and about climate change and about the effects of nature on us. And those uh, that documentary and a lot of films whenever they address what's when nature's coming to get us is that we are the solution even though we're starting to admit we are the problem as well so uh, geostorm points this out like raises this again but it keeps coming back to us trusting in ourselves and we can basically fix things but i wonder well if we kept trusting ourselves but we're part of the problem why would we think that we're the solution for ultimate salvation and that's what geostorm continues to head towards so it's a B-grade remix of all those other disaster movies, Mark, and there's not much stronger I can recommend about it than that. Yeah. Okay, well, Geostorm stars Gerard Butler, Abby Cornish, Jim Sturgis, and as many different types of weather as you can imagine. It opened last week at cinemas everywhere and is rated M for mature themes and violence. Okay, mate, let's get back to the real world. Wild weather, you posed for us a true or false statement about a meteorite that crashed into Earth and how big it actually was. Largest meteorite on uh, record. Was it 25? 
five tons, which is three elephants, forty five tons, which is one hundred grand pianos, or sixty five tons, which is the space shuttle. I'm gonna go with the big one. The big one. It was indeed 65 yes. tons. The space shuttle, something the size of the space shuttle. How crazy is that? You know, interestingly enough, you wonder how big does it have to be before it actually destroys the world? Uh, and that's actually the size of a house, which is 165 tons or, see me being helpful again, 300 grizzly bears. Now, this, I think, is a real film plot. That if you actually sent um, someone like Bruce Willis up into the sky to destroy this meteorite and he found out it had 300 angry grizzly bears on it, that... Is a story. That sounds like a movie that hasn't yet been made, but movie, other movies and TV shows have been and we'll be talking about them soon, including The Sounds of Stranger Things. Mark is going to share some electric dreams, and then the stars of Thor Ragnarok will share their thoughts from the world premiere's red carpet. Welcome back. Now we are up to the soundtrack part of our show, and this week on Netflix, Stranger Things Season 2 has arrived. I repeat... Stranger Things Season 2 has arrived. And one of the most notable things about Stranger Things Season 1 was the music that it brought back to the world. And one of the tunes that it brought back to the world, Mark, is Africa by Toto.
Ah, Mark. The unmistakable sounds of Toto straight out of the 80s with that song Africa. Man, I loved that song when I was a kid. I remember my parents had that album on vinyl and we played that loads around the house. I bet some of our listeners had that moment where a song would come on the radio and you'd almost dive over the intervening seats from the back seat in the car and say, turn it up, turn it up, turn it up. And then then you're just trying to live in the moment of that song because we weren't in a world where you could play the song over and over again. So you just wanted to live for those three minutes. Yeah, even as people mock and scoff at you for your taste in music, you can still uh, hold your head high and proclaim Toto by Africa is awesome. Also awesome, Mark, was Stranger Things, that Netflix highly acclaimed program. One of the things that it did that people really got into, whether they were kids of the 80s or whether they were big fans of the 80s or not, the effective nostalgia in Stranger Things that, that resurrected everything from some cool music from the 80s, like Africa's Toto, to bringing back in... A 80s science fiction, uh, Spielberg's scary stuff and other soundtrack elements is quite an amazing nostalgia piece that Stranger Things was able to do. So as we mentioned just before, Stranger Things Season 2 is out now on Netflix and Mark will be talking about it on the show very, very soon. But this week on The Big Picture, from one much-discussed TV show, Stranger Things, to another... The world, Mark, is divided into two types of people. Those who know who Philip K. Dick was and those who are shortly to marvel at his sci-fi brilliance. Philip K. Dick produced a catalogue of amazing short stories, essays and novels that so far have been turned into 15 feature films, including Blade Runner, three stage plays, one opera, one opera and four television series. We'll actually now make, this, make it five TV series because streaming service Stan is now playing host to Philip K. Dick's Electric Dreams, a collection of ten one-hour standalone stories based on some of Dick's most imaginative short fiction. And Marx discovered not only a good justification for his insomnia, but that reality is a really slippery concept. Just when you think you know what's going on, you don't know the half of it. Just a passenger... Yes, sir, we're all passengers here. We're going on a trip. A voyage. Where? Out there. Somewhere. (laughs) If we do this, there is no going back. I need to talk to someone about my father. Something's going on. You haven't noticed anything unusual since his return? It's just... different. Okay, Mark, so what I understand about Electric Dreams, it sounds like a collection of movies or mini-movies rather than a single standalone show. So can you give us something of a snapshot of some of these mini-movies, these individual episodes that have aired so far? Yeah, that's right. You see, they're rolling out one by one each week on stand. So, right. so far of the ten, we've had five. Uh, and you've got, like, uh, completely different science fiction stories going on. One might be set in a dystopian uh, world, uh, uh, like earthly world. The other might be off-planet um, uh, about alien species, you know, investigating the Earth as a tourist destination. So now, the main link really is Philip K. Dick, Philip the K. author Dick's of the source material. Amazing imagination, yeah. So one episode that's gone to air so far is The Hoodmaker, and it stars Richard Madden. You might know him as Rob Stark from Game of Thrones. Okay, so he's basically a detective in an author. Uh, 
authoritarian regime that looks kind of something like V for Vendetta, that world, yes, you know, yes. in Britain. Um, but there's this minority of human beings who are telepaths, okay, people who can read other people's thoughts. Of course. And they're called teeps because uh, yep. they're mistrusted. They live in ghettos. They're, roti- they're routinely discriminated against. Uh, and there's this telepath who's recruited by the police to try and find out what's going on because a, a mysterious individual is creating and distributing telepath a telepath-proof hoods. Okay, so that episode's called The Hoodmaker. Um, but then that's one end of things. You flip right over to the other end of the scale. You've got a um, an episode called Crazy Diamond, which stars Steve Buscemi. Okay. Oh, from uh, Boardwalk Empire. That's Steve right, yeah. 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 And he's um he's he plays just a company guy called Ed Morris. He produces synthetic humanoids called Jackson Jills. <laughs> you know, that's just his job. Um, until one day a dying Jill comes to him and says, Look, you know, I want to do a deal with you. If you help me to get this super consciousness, um, I'll be able to go on. Maybe you'll be able to get a retirement plan out of this. Um, and it's just an interesting sort of thing. You've got another one about a, a futuristic detective um, in real life by Anna Paquin, okay, mm-hmm. who's playing that. Yeah, yeah then, from the X-Men series. Yeah, uh, another one about a guy who rewrites um, his past in order to have a more enjoyable future, Timothy Spalls, you know, playing in that. So big names, imaginative scripts. It's kind of like just the who's who of Hollywood has a look at the what's what of science fiction. But are the episodes any good? I think that they're okay. <laughs> oh, just okay? Well, you see, this ah, is the thing. It's a bit of a letdown. Yeah, but if you're looking Big for, ideas and big cast. Yeah, but if sci- if you're looking for science fiction that's Star Wars or Star Trek or The Expanse or something like that, you'll be going, where's my laser gun? Okay, where's my spaceship? But um, if you're looking at science fiction, which is weird and strange concepts, a world you don't quite understand, one fundamentally changed idea, like the fact that the Germans won World War Two, and the world is now, you know, living uh, in the light of an authoritarian regime that spans the planet. I mean, there's an idea that changes everything. It's that sort of science fiction. So it's more thinking person science fiction than it is, um, you know, get me a Death Star and blow it up. Um, we mentioned just before that it sounded like Philip K. Dick is pretty much the only thread going through all these different worlds, these different episodes. But is, is that actually true? Is there more? Like, are there more themes or ideas well, that actually hold, link all these worlds up? Yeah, because it's Philip K. Dick, you basically end up with some key themes that he was always writing about. So the episodes always ask a question like, what does it mean to be human? Okay, in this circumstance, what would a human being do? Mm-hmm. Or, was it, or if we're going to create something... When does it become human as opposed to just like a toaster? Um, and then another thing is like the idea of the fact that he doesn't have heroes. He has common working place people. All the stories are about normal people who might do heroic things, but are just normal people, which is a very interesting thing. Yeah, and all the, of this sounds great. Yeah, I know it is. and it looked, Really enticing. Uh, maybe I just played it down because I just <laughs> want to say it is actually really you know, mind-blowing. It's interesting sort of science fiction. But okay. not necessarily gripping to watch is what it sounded well, like to me, like, but it's better yeah, to talk about. Yeah, yeah. It's like it's kind of like if you were the sort of person who really likes science shows and, and stuff like that or, or slow-burning dramas on the ABC, you'd love this. It'd be great science fiction for you. Uh, but the other one's really interesting is just how fragile the nature of real is, that our idea of real can be turned over straight away by a change in perspective. One step to the right and suddenly the world is completely new. Okay, in Philip K. Dick's Electric Dreams, is there anything for Christians to take away, in particular? 
Yeah, I think basically that last idea that the world is actually much more complex and strange than you think. One step to the left and suddenly everything changes. Um, Philip K. Dick actually struggled with the idea of God okay, in his writing, but he never did away with God. He just struggled to understand why God would do what, what God was doing. If there's a God, why is he behaving this way? Um, and he, he left lots of room. I think today our atheists are more in the, the, the position of, I don't understand, so therefore it can't be true, Mm-mm. whereas Philip Philip K. Dick is more like, I don't understand, why does he behave the way he does? Mm, that's uh, not the same thing as therefore God doesn't exist. No, it's more likely I don't understand him, so my, lo- my knowledge is limited. I find that sort of thinking interesting. I think you'll find it interesting too. Philip K. Dick's Electric Dreams stars luminaries like Anna Paquin, Steve Buscemi, Richard Madden, Timothy Spall, and I believe Breaking Bad's Brian Cranston yeah, also is in some of these episodes. Too. And that's just to name a few. It's rated M and available for your viewing pleasure via Stan, with a new episode releasing each week. Mark, coming up very soon on The Big Picture, Thor Ragnarok. We've got Chris Hemsworth, Kate Blanchett, and other cast members having their say about being part of the Marvel Universe before we weigh in on the latest superhero adventure, Thor Ragnarok. Welcome back. Thank you very much for joining us on The Big Picture. Still to come, uh, our verdict on Thor Ragnarok. But before we get there, Mark, The Big Picture brings us all what the star-studded cast shared about their involvement in the latest Marvel blockbuster from the red carpet at the world premiere in LA recently. Got a couple of grabs from key cast members, including Chris Hemsworth here, who discusses why Ragnarok came together as a much different Marvel beast. Yeah, it was kind of a perfect storm of uh, different ideas and a great, wonderful collaboration. You know, I, I, after doing the second Thor and the second Avengers, felt a little bored of myself and what I'd done and thought, we can do more and, and let's reach further. And then Taika came on board and, um, and both said, yeah, there's a lot more to explore that we haven't yet. And um, so every day was about doing something different and taking risks and breaking the old version and reinventing it. And, and, uh, and I think we did that. And it was the best experience I've had. The best experience Chris Hemsworth has had. Wow, that sounded like a defining statement of his life. It actually did sound like he actually enjoyed playing a role. And you've got to say, if an actor enjoys the role, it's probably going to be a great performance. And I really like how candid he was about, like, but, but also being respectful and saying, look, I, I'm getting a little bit bored with playing Thor. That's what I'm reading between those lines. But we wanted to do something to continue this song because I think there's, there's legs to it, uh, which is why New Zealand director Taika Waititi got involved with this franchise. And here he explained explains exactly why he wanted to be part of Ragnarok. Okay, I was coming into the third movie in a franchise, so I wanted to obviously respect what the first two films had done, but also use that as a bit of a launching pad to, to, to try and do something very fresh and very uh, authentic to me and to my voice. So, so I tried to make it as Taika as possible, and I think I did that. It's a very colourful film. It's a very... Um, it's loud, you know. It's obnoxious and not in an arrogant way. Uh, yeah, I mean, I want I, what, what I really wanted was to remind people that movies can be fun and it can be a nice experience when you leave a movie to be smiling as you leave the cinema. Mark Taika Waititi, I think, is a name that most people don't know as a director. And you might have picked up he's a New Zealand director, but after Thor Ragnarok, they are definitely going to know his folks' name. They might not be able to pronounce it. But they're definitely going to know his name, don't you think? Honestly, we saw uh, an interview with him uh, prior. In fact, at the, pre- the Red Carpet premiere. Um, he the, was the one there, here in Sydney. In the one in Sydney, yes. he was here. Um, and so he's telling us about the film. And um, his personality is the film. Like yes. he is just 
funny as, and interestingly, so is Thor. Yeah, which we'll be discussing very, very soon, Thor Ragnarok. Before we get there, though, we thought we'd bring in Tom Hiddleston, who plays Loki in the Thor films and the Avenger films. And here on the red carpet at the world premiere in LA, he's reflecting on being part of the overall Marvel screen universe. I've been doing this a while. <laughs> and it's grown and the enthusiasm for the, for the Marvel Universe has grown and more people have joined and the, and the characters, there are more characters and it's sort of more epic and more... Somehow it's just grown and deepened and the, and the fans have been there for, for the ride and, and I'm, I'm always amazed that I'm still here, to be honest. Yeah. More epic. <laughs> you know, the interesting thing is that Hiddleston's actually really inhabited that role of Loki. That I just, I think it was almost like a bit part. He's turned into a full fledged character. It's amazing. Speaking of other characters in this Thor universe, a new one that's showing up in Thor Ragnarok is Hela, played by Kate Blanchett. Here from the red carpet, Kate Blanchett explains why she joined the Avengers Marvel Universe. Tyke is a, an utterly unique beast and it was, uh, I think for all of us, it was, it was to sort of be part of Tyke's take on the whole thing because it's, it's kind of a, um, a Thor reboot extraordinaire. A Thor reboot extraordinaire, says Kate Blanchett, and one word got her signed on, Taika. Well, two words, I suppose, Taika Watiti. But it seems like he is a big draw card, and, and uh, going on other interviews that I've heard by the Thor Ragnarok cast, it all keeps pointing back to this funny-ass bloke from New Zealand. Now, Mark, to finish off at this red carpet wrap-up of Thor stars, going back to Chris Hemsworth, who explains what it's actually like to meet a god. Kate Blanchett is my hero on and off the screen and, you know, needed to be intimidating in that character and I was more intimidated to work with her than anyone else I've ever met, you know. She's sort of a god in my opinion and she gave such a warmth and um, accessibility to, to, to that experience that I'm forever grateful for and yet created one of the most villainous characters I think you'll ever see. There you go, Mark and Chris Hemsworth's words. Kate Blanchett's a god. Well, Ben and I got to be part of the Sydney premiere of Thor Ragnarok. Uh, so did Chris Hemsworth, Mark Ruffalo, and New Zealand <laughs> director called Taika Waititi. It's nice that they made it along. I felt well supported. No, it's nice that they could join us. <laughs> anyway, well, while, we're, while, they were, while we were there, uh, Waititi gave a funny casual introduction to his Marvel movie, which turned out to be the vibe of the latest Save the Universe outing for Norse god Thor. We had a great time with Thor Ragnarok, a superhero movie that thankfully doesn't take itself too seriously and surprisingly easy to see yourself in. Where are we? You have no idea. Hello, the goddess of death has invaded Asgard. Oh, I've missed this. And you and I had a fight recently. Did I win? No, I won easily. Doesn't sound right. Well, it's true. I've got to say, um, that is just bringing me right back to the performance. It was a brilliant show. What is Thor like as a Marvel film for you, though? Does Taika have a distinct impact? Yes, everything Taika Waititi was saying in those um, clips that we just played earlier and people were saying about him, I think is true of Thor Ragnarok. He brought this real zip and zest and freshness to a superhero film that 
Uh, and as I discussed on the big picture previously when we brought up Marvel and DC films, I'm not a huge superhero movie guy. I like them. I'm just I'm not as besotted with them as loads of people are. So I think it can often take me a little bit more to be convinced by them and to, and to get into them. And this one, for my money, like let me put it up with The Guardians of the Galaxy. I was disappointed with that film. I thought that was going to be funnier and more irreverent. I know a lot of people found it that way. I didn't necessarily, but what, this you mean one, the first one or the second one? The, Gar- fir- the first one, Guardians of the Galaxy. Yeah. But Thor Ragnarok, I think, is the film Guardians of the Galaxy was trying to be. It's it's offbeat and off-kilter, but still respectful enough of what it's doing and the, and the universe it's in. So, yes, I and I think that all goes down to Taika Waititi. So, as a Marvel film, it does f- come off like, as Chris Hemsworth was kind of discussing, and Kate, Kate Blanchett was saying, it's this Thor reboot that seemed like there's something that was getting a little bit stale even for those involved in it, let alone those watching it. They wanted to, like, spark it a bit. So how are we going to do that? Well, let's bring in a new director who's got some cool new ideas and they haven't necessarily reinvented the world. They've just spiced it up a bit. Yeah, indeed. So it sounds like you're a fan. I mean, yes, you've been one over. Certainly I am. Was there anything that you felt didn't work, though? Yeah, I thought the storyline was a bit slim. And look, I'm not asking for world beaters when it comes to a superhero movie. It's no Geostorm. It's no Geostorm. <laughs> Not every movie can be, Mark. Uh, <laughs> Thor Ragnarok, look, put simply, has got Thor, who's trying to save his home planet of Asgard from being turned into something called Ragnarok that's got something to do with the goddess of death, Hela, played by Kate Blanchett. So while she's basically trying to destroy, kill off his home planet and turn it into this Ragnarok thing, Thor gets banished to the other side of the, of the universe on this like planet that's got raining rubbish down on it that is that is led by a cult leader, played amazingly by Jeff Goldblum. Who, who does a fantastic job. Oh, he does a fantastic job. So does his other character that shows up that Taika Waititi does the voice for is like this rock guy. It's like a gladiator planet and there's this rock man who uh, sounds a lot like, you know, those viral videos on YouTube that came from New Zealand called Beached As yes. a couple of years ago. It's like Beached As has turned into a Marvel character. It's like Beached As is in a blockbuster. It's it's amazing and it works really well. So that's the positive. We keep going back to the sense of humour, which is fantastic. On the negative, yeah, I thought look, the storyline is just a little bit slim. If you actually stop laughing and, and stop like ceasing going along for the ride, you'll notice that it's familiar and a bit uninspired. Speaking of uninspired, Kate Blanchett's performance, Mark, I... Yeah. Like, I think she's I think she's great. And I'm not just saying that because I'm Australian and I'm meant to. I think she's a terrific actress and can usually inhabit and bring something to any role that she plays, usually. But on this occasion, as this, like, wearing a cat suit and a vampy makeup, it was just a paint-by-numbers villain for me. And she's often sidelined. And everything from her lines to her strut to just her presence on screen was... Largely underwhelming and lacking in impact. I wonder whether that was more a script problem than, or a direction problem there than it was. Do you think so? Because Kate, what she does, she does well. But I looked at it and I thought to myself, "Wow, it just kind of looks like." Galadriel on a bad day. Yeah, whereas everybody else, including Chris Hemsworth, Thor, who thankfully, like after we saw him in the Ghostbusters reboot the other year, he was the best thing about that. One of the things about it was he's funny and his comic timing is terrific as Thor and then getting Mark Ruffalo back in as Hulk. Like all of these other characters have really good turns on screen, including a new character called Tessa Thompson who's playing as Valkyrie. All of them are great mm. and they really work well in this um, this freshened up zesty universe that Taika, Taika Waititi has um, had loads of fun with apart from Kate Blanchett's villain and you know you usually need a strong villain 
in one of these films to really make it sing. And I think that's, for me, one of the lower lights of Thor Ragnarok. Okay, but Thor himself, how does he handle the film? How does he come across as Mate, a I really like Thor, and I was trying to work out why. I, I, again, I think Chris Hemsworth's performance is, is terrific, but he's really relatable, which is a daft thing to say, because I'm hardly buff and I'm not a Norse god. But I noticed one of those. <laughs> But um, he, he he's so relatable because he's not the, the sharpest tool in the box. But there's a, a constant refrain going through this film of he uh, he does what a hero does because that's what a hero does. He does the right thing because it's the right thing to do. There's something really noble and likable about that. And yet he needs teamwork and assistance all all the way through. And he's flawed and he's just not like nearly as like you know, sophisticated or as adept as some other superheroes or heroic characters can be, which is great, which is a little bit like the real myth of Thor. If people go back and like look into the back history of Thor, they'll discover the guy is just like he's a bit of a bumbling god around the place, which um like it kind of reminds me of Jesus. Like follow me on this, but it, Jesus wasn't a bumbling god and he uh he was he wasn't flawed and he uh but he was relatable. And if you look back into the actual story of Jesus, if you think about Thor, you go back and look at what where Thor came from. If you go back and look where Jesus came from, you can actually see how relatable he is. He can seem so distant and detached and far from us, like a Norse god might be. But as Thor Ragnarok reminds us, when it comes close, you can see the relatable elements, and that can make us be drawn to them. I think, in a way, that Jesus is exactly the same thing if you investigate and really look at who the guy was. So, I came out of Thor Ragnarok thinking about the relatable Jesus, the relatable Thor, not so much about Kate Blanchett, but, <laughs> but singing the praises of Taika Watiti, who is going to go on to do bigger and bigger things. Yep. Okay. Well, Thor Ragnarok stars Chris Hemsworth, Tom Hiddleston, Mark Ruffalo, Kate Blanchett, and Jeff Goldblum. It opens this Thursday and is going to dominate cinemas everywhere and it's going to be rated I reckon about an M. Yeah, now stick around for a life or death finale to this episode of The Big Picture. The most life-affirming film ever is coming up as well as Mark's top five most likeable deaths. What? Mo- yeah, most I'll li- explain. I'll most likeable deaths? Hey, welcome back to The Big Picture. And if you have missed any past episode of The Big Picture, go and find it wherever you get good podcasts from. The Big Picture, a Christian insight into movies, TV, popular culture. Go get it. Now, so far, the show has included an inordinate amount of death, basically. There has been a lot of death. We've been talking about death in Geostorm, life and death in Philip K. Dick's Electric Dreams. Hello, the goddess of death was in the last break. Well, it's time for something life-affirming. Laura Bennett is one of the most life-affirming people we know. True story. She's from Hope 103.2, who's part of the Big Picture family, and we're going to welcome her to the show to share her most life-affirming film. Hey, Laura. Okay, let's hit, hit us with what is the most life-affirming film ever? Well, this for me, guys. Hello. Thank you for having me. That's okay. You are most welcome. But get to the point, Laura. <laughs> what is the most... We need to know. We've had so much death on the Big Picture this episode. The most life-affirming film. Go. Let redeem it with the king's speech oh yes has to be i think it's one of the only films i've ever given 10 out of 10 to when it first came out back in 2010 and wow yeah it's up there and if you're not familiar with the story it's that of uh, king george the sixth who at the time was the duke of york and he had quite an issue with stammering he wasn't that great when it came to all the public speaking and of course being someone who is part of the monarchy public speaking is a key part of your role And And, and played up on screen by mr darcy himself colin firth yes indeed 
And you've also got Aussie Jeffrey Rush in this one as well. And Helena Bonham Carter in one of the few roles where she's not being curious and strange. Or, or <laughs> evil. Or yeah. evil, yeah. She's playing this relatively normal wife. And you're like, wow, well done for being just a little bit more normal. Yeah, not, yeah, not true, Not even true. an evil wife. But, but the character Jeffrey Rush is playing, which is, is fascinating that an Australian is teaching an English how to, uh, English person how to speak well. But uh, the, the main thing that King's Speech boils down to, Laura, isn't it the relationship between Jeffrey Rush's character and the king? Yeah, and uh, Lionel, who is uh, Jeffrey Rush's character, he is the one that does this speech therapy, and their friendship is really what enables King George the Sixth to then be able to make the speeches and do the speeches that he has to. But it's a very unconventional method of coaching um, that the Doctor does use. And why particularly I think this is the film you've got to see for that life-affirming content is because not only for King George the Sixth is his voice his way of sort of showing that he can engage with people, but in an era in the early 1930s when that public speaking and the the way that it was broadcast across radio was starting to become so big being able to articulate what you needed to say that was your way of actually engaging with the people you represented mm, as mm. a key uh, a key member of the monarchy and for king george he just he couldn't connect and it really it brought home to me that idea that each of us do have a voice each of us do have something to say and we have a way that we need to engage with the world around us and what we have to say is really important, which is part of what uh, is discovered in this film, that each person has a voice and it's valued. You've just got to find a way to actually get it out. And sometimes it's an unconventional method or an unconventional person that comes alongside and helps you. And in this film, you see that it doesn't happen alone, that you, you are enabled to live your calling and you're enabled to share your voice based on the company you keep, but also having a little bit of faith in yourself as well. Oh, well, that's fantastic. So you, it's definitely about you have something to say, but you also think um, the friendship plays a major part. Yeah, definitely, because without the character of Lionel in this film, you would not at all see the king becoming the king that he can be, but he he just has this sense of, um, I guess, He's very he's very nervous about being a king because he sees his impediment of something that's going to as something that's going to hold him back. But Lionel's able to say, "Look, you actually are a king. That's who you are. We just need to enable you to communicate that identity." Laura, I, I feel my life has just been affirmed by you talking to us <laughs> about the King's Speech, your most life affirming film. Are you actually punching the air right now? Are you like <laughs> high fiving yourself as you talk? You sound so amped about the King's Speech. Oh, there is a little bit of fist pumping going on, so uh, I'm really <laughs> glad that my puppy isn't. In in the room with me because I think he'd be looking at me rather curiously. So no, it's just me fist pumping myself. So is that strange? I don't know. No, uh, <laughs> not when you, Laura Bennett, are talking on the big picture about your most life-affirming film. Thanks very much, Laura. No worries at all. Thank you. Oh, Mark. That was so, in two words, life-affirming. Indeed, I feel affirmed. Indeed, you right let's, royal... Let's go on with life. You right royal co-host of The Big Picture. So, uh, from Laura Bennett's most life-affirming film ever to... <laughs> what a way to end The Big Picture this week, Mark. The top five most likeable deaths... Yes, indeed. That's right. I'd like to introduce you to my top five most likeable deaths. I mean, we've been dealing about the grim side of life, and Laura's done her bit to lift our spirits. I thought I'd lift our spirits by talking about really nice deaths. What are you talking about? Well, I'm not talking about like your most likeable demises on screen or something like that, like the time that huge plant fell on that guy or something like that. Oh, good. I'm not good. talking about that. I'm talking about people who've played death and oh. done a really good job of it. So the, my most likeable capital D deaths. You know, I mean, it's a huge role, just the, the ability to actually bring off death on the screen. So let me be begin by giving you, well, number five. 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 
Meet Joe Black, 1998. Um, that was death in a tuxedo. Okay, <laughs> so basically Brad Pitt plays death. The most handsome death ever. Yes, yeah, so, and that's really all I'm going to give him. On that. <laughs> okay. I mean, this is why he's at number five. The film was largely criticised because it was three hours long. Oh, was it? Yeah, it was. It epic. was a bit long. And Death doesn't actually say much. He's just, he doesn't really know much. But he does have a lovely suit. Yeah. And I particularly like that suit. And so I thought to myself, well, just to kick things off, Brad Pitt, not a bad death in Meet Joe Black. Four. It, now, better, it better really pick up from here, well, Mark. I mean, sure, tuxedos are likable, but Now really? we get on to the goodies. Okay, A Christmas Carol, 2009. Uh, look, the ghost of Christmas yet to come is actually death, okay? And so you have this amazing sort of situation where Jim Carrey, he's playing Scrooge, uh, and he's being taken through his life, uh, what he has done, what he is doing, and, and what he'll yet do and why uh, in relation to Christmas. This was actually the first Disney animated movie to be released in IMAX 3D, interestingly, and you've got a really classic Grim Reaper in the form of the ghost of Christmas yet to come. Uh, and it, but it's not a really grim Reaper, okay? It's like this is the <laughs> I see what thing. you did there. Yeah, thank you. This um, Reaper um, has kind of almost the he's it, it, got bad news, but it's almost like the firmness of a father or a doctor who's telling you exactly what you need oh, to know. like your dad death. Yeah, I know. He doesn't actually say much, <laughs> like about three words, but he really is a presence on screen. So if you're looking for a fatherly affirming death, go see A Christmas Carol. Three. Mate, mate, this is one of the most uh, <laughs> strange, so bizarre top fives you, you've you've come with. I'm still going with you on this journey. You ain't seen nothing. On yet. your top five most likable deaths at number three. At number three, Bill and Ted's bogus journey. You from have here Bill and Ted's bogus journey from 1991. <laughs> okay. So death um, is a character. Basically, Bill and Ted die. Okay. And oh, thanks for ruining it. Yeah, so that's the beginning of the film. It's the whole premise of the film. And this is the sequel to Bill and Ted's excellent adventure, yeah. that excellent adventure. Interestingly, it is the sequel. The sequel was going to be called Bill and Ted Go to Hell. But, um, yeah, it was changed. That was a bit hardcore? Yeah, exactly. Because some of the audience, apparently that was going to offend some audiences. So they decided so not to bogus do that. journey. And instead they went with Bill and Ted's bogus journey, where Bill and Ted pass into the afterlife um, and meet death. Okay, instead of playing... Um, chess for the souls of of the key characters, as they do in Seventh Seal. He plays Battleship. <laughs> Battleship. That's it's right. a much more friendly death. <laughs> the ultimate game. Um, and it, it, he's played by William Sadler. He's really kind of cool. At the end, he raps. <laughs> <laughs> My favourite two, last two deaths, okay? Really, it was so hard to pick between number two and number one, but here's number two. Um, it is from The Book Thief from 2013. Oh, splendid film. Yeah. Now, this is uh, the spiritual narrator of the entire film is death, and death as he looks on the lives of human beings, etc. in World War Two, And he tells us about Liesl Menninger, who's a, a an orphan and her quest, who's sent to live in a particular German town during World War Two and the bombing raids, and her quest to find happiness and meaning through the books that she steals um, so that she can quite try and find out about the world around her. Uh, Roger Allen reads the narrator Death. It's the first time this film, actually, that uh, John Williams wrote a music 
for a film not directed by Steven Spielberg since 2005. So, and you think that plays a part in the appeal of the death mu- here? Yeah, because the music really undergirds death right, right. in the way that he presents himself. Uh, you never see death, but death is this um, is so mindful of the suffering in the world, and he's gently gathering up some of the characters, even as the world is going to you know to pieces around them. For some, he is the kindest character they'll ever meet, and there's something to be said about death being a relief from the suffering this world. Mm, um, I think it's a moving character, the book thief. From a caring death to... One. What is the most likeable death, Mark Hadley? It is impossible to go past the most likeable death ever portrayed, and that is from Monty Python's The Meaning of Life from 1983. Oh, yeah. Now, listen, yes. The Meaning of Life is a pretty so-so film with, you know, it's kind of like boring scenes with five or six really good scenes. And the best of those five or six has to be the scene where death comes to dinner. Okay, so there's this uh, uh, a British couple and an American couple and two American couples having a lovely dinner party and there's this knocking on the door. It's John Cleese. He's death. Okay. <laughs> of course he is. He's the Grim Reaper. Uh, as an interesting point, he, the the only character to appear in like death appears in many Monty Python films. The only character to appear in all Monty Python films isn't death. Um, it's actually God. Okay, but, right. But death plays second place. Um, and he's just um, he's so trying to get through to these people that that death is here. Their life has come to an end and they're busy trying to pass around the sherry and asking him if he'll come in and, and all that sort of stuff. And what's he doing with his, how's his reaping going? Um, you know, it's all that sort of stuff. Uh, it reminds me of just how clueless we can be about the greatest fact of our existence and our need to do something about death before he comes visiting us. Yes? Is it about the head? I'm awfully sorry. I am the Grim Reaper. Who? The Grim Reaper. Yes, I see. I am death. Yes, well, the thing is, we've got some people from America for dinner tonight. Who is it, darling? It's a Mr. Death or something. He's come about the reaping. I don't think we need any at the moment. Hello. But do leave him hanging around outside, darling. Ask him in. Don't think it's quite the moment. Do come in. Come along in. Mark, from the most likeable deaths on screen to something else far more life-affirming next week's episode of The Big Picture. What is coming up? Yes, will new Aussie comedy drama Three Summers be the folk music version of The Castle? The folk music version of The Castle. We've also got Michael Fassbender starring in the chilly serial killer thriller The Snowman. Plus George Clooney, Matt Damon and Suburban Mayhem in Suburbicon. I will be the life for filming Ben McKechnie next week. And I'll be looking forward to seeing you as Mark Hadley. The Big Picture is a Bible Society Australia production, sharing the light of God's Word into every corner of your world. Thanks for listening. Start your day with life words. Subscribe to Hope 1032's free daily email devotional at hope1032.com.au.